Father, we do give you all glory and praise and adoration. We want to worship you and thank you for all you have done on our behalf through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that our gratitude would be expressed not just in songs of praise, but as we also read and study your word with hearts that would obey. So, Lord, incline our hearts to obedience. Sanctify us by your truth today. We pray especially for those who don't know you. Call them to the work of your son to repent, to have faith in what he has done and in in the person of Christ himself. Turn to him and follow him. Lord, all of us need your spirit to move in us today to accomplish these things. And so we ask for them in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a wonderful day, as always, to worship with you. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We've made our way to chapter 2, verse 4. I understand that every week it seems like we have a lot of new visitors with us. If you are new with us, I'll just let you know. What we like to do here at NBC is to preach expositionally or expositorily. And what that means is simply that the text, the Bible, determines the message. I don't come up with some topic and then go look for proof text. We open the Bible and we simply study it and what it has to say to us. Oftentimes what that means is what we do here at NBC and a lot of expositors do is we go through the Bible book by book book and verse by verse. A lot of times that's called in the old world, that was called Lectio Continua. We just pick up where we left off. And where we have left off is there in 2 Peter chapter 2 and we're going to start in verse 4. In our men's group, We're studying the final phase of Christian history this semester. And just yesterday, we made our way through the bulk of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. And of course, this was a precipitous time in American history. America's identity was born in those days. Sort of sandwiched between two great awakenings, of course, was the American Revolution. And that gave us an identity of who we are. What is an American? What is America? Who are these people? Before, America, of course, was just an extension of the British Empire. They were British people in British colonies doing British things. But in that time, in that turn of the century, before and after, American identity was formed. They had this revolution. It was, as we talked about in the men's group, it was a patrician revolution. It was not a revolution to burn and kill and overturn and maim and destroy and bring down. No, it was to build up human freedom. The American Revolution was to build up and to create and to establish a more perfect union, as you remember. So Americans' identity is that of freedom, individual freedom. What many religious people would contribute, especially the Baptist, was religious freedom in that day. The part of American ethos was that of freedom. I read a book recently about the inventor of the diesel engine. His name was Rudolf Diesel. And he gave in his journals, as many did for about 200 years after the revolution, gave one of those stunned accounts of what he found in America. One of the things he mentioned is that America, part of American identity was not just the freedom that I just described, but also volunteerism. Because the church was a free church and it wasn't funded by the government, 
people knew that if religion and good works and good deeds were to be done in their community, they had to fund it. And so part and parcel to American identity was that Americans are givers. You know that stands true even today. It's growing less and less, but Americans are the most giving people in the world. We give more to charity, not just numerically, not just dollar amount, but proportionally, percentage-wise, we give more than any other group or any other country in the world. We are a giving people. We volunteer. We do good works more than any other country. America is also individualistic. We foster the idea of we can raise our kids by ourselves. We can teach ourselves. We can do our own thing. We can go out into the frontier back then and live without government interference. We're also religious, again, con uh, connected to the idea of being volunteers. We're religious. America has held on to religion like no other nation. You look at all the other Western nations, and they have thrown away religion. They mock religion. And yet here in America, even, even though it's dying, even though it's in peril today, America, in terms of Western countries, America alone is still tied to religion. America is industrious. Another part of our identity is that Protestant work ethic, that idea that if you work hard, you can, you can earn a living for your family. You can raise up and live the way you want to. This is the Protestant work ethic, another part of American identity. So Americans have this identity. They're hardworking, individual, individualistic, God-fearing people. That is America, really, only until recently, that has been a strong part of our identity. Well, here in 1 Peter, Peter has told the Christians they're scattered abroad, he called them the elect exiles. But he goes on, and the passage we're going to look at today, he says, it's not just that you're elect exiles. You have an identity, an identity that you ought to cherish, an identity that's going to define you. And the more you cherish it, the more it will define your actions and your activities. And so this section here in 1 Peter 2, what we have is the Christian's identity, the identity of true believers, He's given again, he's given this a little bit earlier, but he now he offers us something that's so much more rich, encouraging in terms of our identity, kind of like hearing that you're an American and what all that means. You hear who you are as a Christian, and it should incite you not just warm feelings, but activity and action. He says, first of all, there in the section we're going to look at today, that we are like living stones we're like stones that build the temple. Jesus is the cornerstone. Then he's going to say, and we're going to look at this next time, he's going to say we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Very famous verse there. A people of God's own possession. That's verse 9 and 10. Then he says in verses 11 and 12, we're sojourners. We're not just exiles. We're not just refugees who have no place to go. We are longing for a place. We are marching to Zion, right? Beautiful, beautiful Zion, the city of God. We have a place, we have a home, and we're on our way to that glorious home. We are sojourners. Well, after Peter gives us this identity, and what we're going to look at in the next few weeks, Peter launches into how we should then live. How should we operate? How does this identity, identity define us? And this begins in verse 13. How should we act? If this is all of our identity, how should we act? How should we relate to the government? How should we relate to our bosses? How should we relate... Husbands and wives, how should we relate as church people among one another, as brothers and sisters of Christ? 
And that really takes us all the way to the last sac section, which is the, last, the final chapter and a half or so of the book, which is how should we su suffer? If this is our identity, how should we suffer? So really, this section sets up the rest of the book of 1 Peter. So let's save some time and we'll study our identity. And today we're going to look at this first identity, and that is the identity of living stones. Let me read to you our passage beginning in verse 4 down to verse 10. Follow along as I read aloud. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. When we come to the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, it's important to remember that when Jesus spoke, he knew that his audience was not merely the people in front of him, the crowds or the apostles or the Pharisees or whomever. Jesus knew that as the very Word of God, the revelation of God, he, as God incarnate, was speaking to humanity. And so his words had a depth and a richness and a purpose beyond probably what those initial listeners his initial audience would comprehend. He was speaking as God to his creation, revealing himself. One of the places that we see this is, most obviously, is in John chapter 2 at the very beginning of his ministry. Jesus did something he would do also at the end of his ministry, and that was he would go cleanse the temple. And uh, he did it those two times essentially to show that even though the, the greatest preacher, the greatest minister on earth, living and doing ministry for three years there, did not change a thing in the hearts of the people of Israel. So he starts out, he does this cleansing, and of course the religious leaders are all uh, verklempt, as we used to say. They're frustrated, they're emotional, they can't believe he's come and done this. And Jesus says something sort of strange. He says, destroy this temple, this is in John 2, and in three days I will raise it up. And everyone's sort of confused. They're saying, what in the world are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple. That was Herod's temple, it took many, many years to build this temple. How could he rebuild it in three days? Three years later, of course, they would use some of these words against them, try to prove that he was some sort of insurrectionist who wanted to destroy the temple. But when Jesus said that, John gave us the broader picture, the divinely breathed fuller meaning. Verse 21 of John 2. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So he was referring to his body as the temple. Now, this is an astonishing, novel idea. You know the history of the temple, right? There was that first temple, which was not a, a place that stayed in one place. It was the tabernacle. God gave Moses all these 
regulations, all these dimensions, all these rules about how they would build this place of worship, the tabernacle, and it would move around with them. It sat at the very center of the camp. If, if you map out the way it's described, they were to set up camp around the tabernacle, what you find is that all the tribes are equidistant from the temple. And right at the middle of the camp was the temple. Of course, right in the middle of the temple was the Holy of Holies, above which was the presence of God, the fire by night and cloud of smoke by day. Now, I don't know much about the metaphysics of Jewish thought back then, particularly when it comes to the omniscience of God. What did they think about how God was everywhere? But I did ask a Jewish fellow one time about God's omnipresence because I knew they believed in God's special presence, they would say, in the Holy of Holies between the cherubim, the, the angels that were there on top of the ark. And, and I asked him, like, if that's where God is, well, is he not omnipresent? He said, no, we believe in God's omnipresence, but we would say that his face dwells in the temple. So that if you want to do business with God, you go to the temple. If you want to meet with God, you go to the temple. Yes, God is everywhere. God can be met everywhere. But if you want to do true worship, if you want to do worship by the way he's designed it, you go to the temple and meet with God there. That's where the sacrifices of God were made. That's where the incense and the prayers were made. That's where the libation was made. That's where all the worship happens, where the atonement was found. That's where you met with God, in essence, face to face. That was the temple. All the sacrifices and worship and atonement were accomplished there at the temple. So that's the tabernacle. That's the temple, the initial one there with Moses. Of course, that was replaced by the Solomonic, Solomonic temple. That, that was what Solomon built, right? He built this glorious temple, a permanent place there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. That magnificent temple was destroyed. And a number of years later, after exile, after returning from exile, Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, sort of in small form. And that temple was either destroyed and rebuilt, or parts of it were used to build the next temple, which was the Herodian temple, which is the one that was standing when Jesus was there, the one that they said took 46 years to build. The Herodian temple, you guys know this from some years ago in our study of the book of Matthew, that temple was the greatest temple, physical temple of all. It was massive. It was about 40 acres on the top of that mountain, and right in the middle of that temple mount stood the actual temple edifice. This is the one that existed when Jesus walked the earth. And Jesus essentially is telling them, I am taking the role of temple. The temple is no longer necessary. I would replace it. No longer would it be made of wood and gold and fine fabrics and plaster. No, it is a living person. You want to meet God, you meet Jesus. A righteous man who is God himself. What was true of the temple is true of him. We go to him for atonement. We go to Him to meet with God. We go to Him to worship. We go to Him for sacrifice, to pour out our lives. We go to Him for mediation. And like the people would go to Him, go to the temple to find reconciliation with God, we go to Him we find reconciliation through Him. So it was Jesus who initiated this line of thinking that no longer was there a physical temple, that the temple would be 
him. And he would call people to himself. Well, this becomes a theme for the early people of God. They begin to talk and think like this. And not only would Jesus be calling people to himself, he would make them a part of the temple that he was building. And you see this early in the New Testament. One of the first books that was written in the New Testament was 1 Corinthians. It was very, very early. You ever wonder why we look to 1 Corinthians when we do the Lord's table? We read from 1 Corinthians. It's uh, in some ways, for some reasons, it's because it was one of the earliest accounts of the Lord's table. Uh, written down account. It was probably in the 40s that Paul wrote the 1 Corinthians. And there in the 1 Corinthians, you remember that passage where he says, you are the temple of God. and God's spirit dwells in you. Verse 16 of chapter 3, God's temple is holy and you are holy. You are that temple. So you join Jesus in creating this edifice. Now you're not Jesus, but you join Jesus and he gathers you around himself just like Moses was building the temple and gathering all those things to build that tabernacle and that temple, Jesus is building his temple. Then later in Ephesians, Ephesians was written about the same time as 1 Peter. And there Paul says, We are fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In the Lord, and you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this language had taken off in that early church that we, with Jesus as our cornerstone, we are becoming the, 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 the people whom God inhabits. We are, we are the place. If someone wants to come worship God, where do they go? They go talk to a Christian, and a Christian will explain to them atonement and sacrifice and how they can worship, truly worship God. We become the temple of God. The Spirit inhabits us. Well, that idea that we're a living stone began with that fact that Jesus says He's the temple, and then it begins to expand with these ideas in that early church that we are all living stones gathered around that central living stone. Well, look what it says in verse 4. As you come to Him... A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. People reject Christ. And we'll get to this a little more later. But ultimately, people reject Jesus because He's holy and they're not. Peter says that the only, to get to the, the only way we can get to the idea is that uh, Jesus has been chosen to be that living stone. He's been chosen to be that temple. He was elect and predestined for this. And he's going to go on and say, we as well. The word is honored and valued in that temple. Love is valued in that temple. What is holy, what is true, it is all made perfect in the temple of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Jesus, Peter says, is that living stone. And if you've been established, you've been established as a part of that living stone. Well, he was using that again to say to us that we too are living stones. So that's number one, if you're taking notes, we are living stones. We are living stones. Again, we could spend a month of Sundays here on this theme, but I count at least three things that Peter says about our identity as living stones. First thing it means is union. 
That's the first thing that pops out to us. It calls Jesus a living stone, and then it says we too are living stones. You yourselves are living stones being built up into the spiritual house. And verses 6 and 7, he quotes from Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118. If you were to go to Israel um, and you go to the Temple Mount, I don't know what it's like today. It's been many years since I've been there. But the last time I went, uh, you go to the men's area, which is where the Wailing Wall is. And uh, I don't know if they've made it available for, for ladies to go, but when I, last I went there, they didn't let ladies do this. But there was a tunnel you could go through, and you could go underneath where the original walls of the original temple, Solomon's temple, was built. And there under that temple mount, you can see this giant stone. When I say giant stone, it's 300 tons. It's this huge stone, and that is the that was the cornerstone of Solomon's temple. A, a cornerstone was a giant stone they would lay down and they would make sure it was level. They would shave it to where it was perfectly level, perfect in every dimension. It was perfect. And then all the other stones would be built using that as the basis of measurement. It was the biggest stone. It was the only perfect stone. And all the other stones that were brought to make that edifice were built based upon that original stone. Well, this is the language that is used by the prophets here, talking of Jesus, that he would be a cornerstone. He was a stone by which everything was built. He was a stone that was absolutely perfect in every dimension. All other stones in that structure would, in unison, rest on that one stone. So this is the idea that Peter is presenting here. Jesus is a living stone, and we too are those stones that come upon him as our cornerstone. We build our lives off him. We rest on him. We measure our life by him. We glorify God like him. And then if God is to glorify him, we too will be glorified. If God is to resurrect him, we too will be resurrected. If God is to bless him eternally, we too will be blessed eternally because we have anchored our life in the chief cornerstone. He grants us all these same, bless, same blessings. So we, like him, are living stones, but we are dependent on him. You know, that early church, they didn't call themselves Christians. Did you know that? That was a term that someone else used, probably derogatorily. Believers, those of the way, the most common word they used to talk of Christians is that we are in Christ. Those of us who are in Christ, we have been joined to Him. He covers us. His sacrifice has covered us. We only can stand before God in Him in that His, co His righteousness covers us. His sacrifice covers us. And so we stand before God in Him. If we are to stand before God, if we are to have the blessings that God is going to bestow upon Jesus in terms of heaven and eternity and glory then we must be found in Him. Suppose I should pause right now and ask some of you, are you in Him? Do you trust in Christ alone? Not your good works, not some accomplishment, not some moment. Do you trust in Christ? Have you rejected that common pagan man-made idea that salvation is not in Christ, but it is merited and earned? But will you trust in Christ? As living stones, we in unity 
come in Christ and base everything off this, our cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the ultimate living stone. And if we're to be living stones, we are to build our lives off of Him. So we are unified with Him. We stand in union with Him. And let me just mention, along with the idea of being in union and communion with Christ, we're in union and communion with one another. You heard that verse that was the old language of the old theologians that we live in mystic, sweet communion. We don't know how it works. We don't know the mystery of what happens in the spiritual realm. It is something only the Spirit provides for us. But we are connected in Him. There is a unity that we find in Him. There is no place in the Bible for the independent Christian. There's no stone of a temple that just rolls around on its own. No, it is built together with other believers around it so that you can live in communion and accountability. We, probably the negative side of America as being individualistic is we try to create an individualistic form of Christianity. I just walk out into the woods like an aborigine and a walkabout. I just walk out there and I experience God on my own. I just have a, a solo experience and I don't need a church or anybody else. No, yes, you do. You need accountability. You need teachers. You need to teach others. We all are to be together. So the union that I think is represented in the idea of living stones is not only our union with Christ, but our union with one another. We're all being built up, stone upon stone upon stone, all based upon Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. And we do this together in union. There in the Old Testament, they appointed from the Levites, the priests. You know, the Levites, that was a tribe of Israel. And their job was to forward the uh, religion and the, the order of the people of Israel. And interestingly, God did not give the Levites directly an inheritance. What God said is He wants the people of Israel to give them part of their inheritance and provide for them in that way. And what the people of Israel did, this is in Joshua, what the people of Israel did is they gave the Levites 48 cities, more than any other tribe had. And those 48 cities are scattered all over Israel so that no Jew is more than 10 miles from a Levitical city. What did the Levites do? Well, they taught the people truth. They taught the people scripture. They taught the people how to worship. They taught the people when they sin, what are they supposed to do? They taught the people what was supposed to happen at the temple. They taught the people what the Bible said. And God wanted those Levites scattered all over Israel so that nobody could be far from one another and from the teaching of the word. Now, that's how we're supposed to live, right? We're not supposed to be off the grid spiritually. We're supposed to be connected with one another, supposed to be some mystic communion with one another. And you found this to be true. Those of you who have, who have been vulnerable and stepped out and engaged in relationship with other Christians and not just a high on Sunday morning, but genuine relationship, what you found is there's a rich, richness, there's a sweet spiritual communion that almost can't be explained except to say what the Scripture says, that God has bound us together. So that's the first idea that we find in being living stones, is that there is union or unity or communion in this identity. 
Another thing that is mentioned in this passage is priesthood. Look there at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're living stones, there's union, and there's priesthood. What do the Old Testament priests do? What do the Old Testament priests accomplish? Now, the priests did fundamentally four things. One, they would give blood atonement. In other words, they provide this message of mediation and atonement that your sins can be taken care of through blood atonement. They offered up something I mentioned earlier that is called libation. So before they would make a sacrifice, they would take a glass of wine or a glass of water and they would pour it out on the ground. And that was to demonstrate their lives are lived in complete abandonment. It is all poured out before God. This sacrifice is just a picture of the fact that we are completely poured out. They did libation. They would offer incense, which was to demonstrate that their needs and their supplication and their worship would go up to God. That's what that incense would do. This beautiful aroma, they light it, they would see the smoke, this beautiful smell, and you could see it with the smoke, would go up to God. Their worship, their praise, their requests, their desires, their prayers would go to God. That's the ministry of incense. And then finally, what they did is they would teach. They would teach others. And I mentioned this moments ago about the Levites, but priests especially, which were a subset of Levites, they would teach people. They would explain to people what God had provided. So we are a priesthood. And we, gotta have to ask, we have to ask ourselves, are we doing this? Are we, first of all, fully resting in the atonement of Christ? Are we giving our lives as a libation? We are a living sacrifice. God, I give you everything as a priest. I pour my life out before you. You know, there was a, an offering. One of the offerings they would offer as priests was called a first fruits offering. And right as the, the harvest was coming in, the first tenth would be cut down. And it wasn't to be eaten or used in any other way other than be thrown on the altar and completely burnt up and consumed. And that, like the libation, is supposed to demonstrate we are completely consumed by you. James would say that we were saved, this is in James 1, I believe in verse 18 or 19, we were saved to be a first fruits. We are saved to be that kind of offering. What does that mean? That means God... I'll do anything if it means your glory. I, I, I don't want cancer, but if it means you are glorified, I'll take it. I don't want hardship in life, but if it means you are glorified on this earth, I'll take it because I am poured out as a libation to you. You do what you will with my life. I am not self-willed. I'm not trying to have my best life now. I'm not trying to accomplish something great or live for some retirement. I'm living for you and you only. I am a libation to you. Is that the way you live? They offer incense. That is the prayer and the praise. Would your life be described in terms of being a priest? Would it be described as someone who is constantly offering prayer and praise, adoration to God? 
And these people, these priests, they taught. Are you telling others? It is a unique privilege that we have to tell someone. You don't have to depend on your works, on something that is immeasurable, that you can never know if you've really done what you need to do. You can actually look to someone who's done it perfectly and trust in Him. He has paid for your sin, and He has provided His righteousness for you if you would believe. You can tell someone that's our unique privilege. You can teach people the truth. Peter says we have this blessed privilege of being the temple of God and acting as priests. It is woven into our identity as living stones. We're together in union, but we also get to be priests. There's a lot of people who are obsessed with their lineage, with their ethnicity, with their ancestry. I always wonder if our ancestors would laugh at us for spitting in little vials and sending them off to tell us that we're one one one-hundredth Scottish. And then the next morning we wake up and we put plaid on and walk to work. I'm Scottish. People are obsessed with their identity. I wonder what would happen if you became obsessed with this idea that God has made me a priest. And I I I have this privilege of offering up prayers, of being a libation, of speaking truth to others, and trusting in the sacrifice of atonement. Now, in case you take any credit for this identity, Peter reminds us in verse 8, quoting from Isaiah 28, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. And he goes on to begin to quote Scripture. In other words, you are not saved because you're better is an honor that is bestowed upon you. It is given to you as a fulfillment that people will believe the gospel. This is part of God's plan. This is prophetic fulfillment. That's one more idea I think we can include in terms of our identity. We are part of a fulfillment. God has spoken from ancient times that people would look upon His Son and be saved. They would look upon that cross that was lifted high, that atoning vicarious sacrifice, and they would be saved. And that honor that you and I have is not because we're better than anybody else. It's because of God's sovereign plan that is working itself out. It is an honor that's bestowed. It's given to us, not credited to us because of something we've done. I've never heard a Christian say, even the most Arminian of Christians, I've never heard a Christian say, I saved myself. I'm glad I had the ability and smarts more than all these lost people to be saved. No, even if they don't comprehend all the consequences of the idea, every true Christian says, but by the grace of God go I. I'm saved by God's love and God's grace alone. Intuitively, every Christian is a Calvinist. They know only God saved me. I did nothing ultimately. Christ be all the glory, not me. Yes, as I talked about a few weeks ago, my will was involved. But my will was only involved insofar as God changed it to love him and to turn to him. Peter says, by the way, folks, what is true for believers is also true for unbelievers. God's plan is working itself out both among believers and unbelievers. 
And I want to be clear on this. The only time that God changes someone's will is to save them. There's no such thing as someone who really desires to repent and trust Christ and God says, oh, sorry, you're not on the list. The only time God changes some, someone's will is to save them. Otherwise, we only will to do wrong. We only will to have superficial religion. We only desire to merit our own salvation and take some sort of credit for it. And what Peter says is this is also part of God's sovereign plan being fulfilled. So verse 7 introduces us to the opposite of living stones, and that is, number two, unbelievers. Unbelievers are defined by rejection. Look there at verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. Why do people reject Jesus? Ultimately, it's because they believe they have control and they want control. They believe they're good enough and smart enough to merit a positive afterlife. And Jesus comes along and says, there is none good. I am your only righteousness. I am your only hope. That's why I said earlier, people reject Jesus. Here's this perfect man who did not harm a, a soul while he was on earth. He did nothing but love and care. Why do people reject him? They reject him because he's holy and they're not. And he says, I am holy. You're not holy. You need my holiness. You must come to God. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and life. You cannot get to God except through me. People reject this. People don't want this. It says in 1 Corinthians, people look upon this idea that Jesus is that stone, that cornerstone in whom they must approach God. They look at that and they, they mock. They think it's foolishness. It's silly. Their pride cannot accept a spiritual world that they don't deserve or haven't earned. And so they stumble over the very idea of the humility of the cross. They mock it. They ridicule it. Or they completely reinterpret it to mean something different that's palatable to them. My family group is studying the life of J. Gresham Machen, and that's precisely what the liberals at the turn of the last century did. They started by questioning the truth of Scripture, and then they reinterpreted everything to be something that's more palatable to mankind, that's more kind to the senses, and really gives men a lot more credit. People create a system like every other man-made religious system that is just a system of merit. So this idea presented to them that you surrender all, that you surrender to Christ alone for payment of sin, you can only be covered in His righteousness, this becomes a stumbling block. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8. Paul called it a scandal. You know what a scandal is? It's something that reveals someone's true nature. The scandal of the gospel reveals people's true nature. Jesus becomes a rock of offense. And so it's not only something that they reject, and that becomes definitive of them, but also is definitive of them is the same thing that's definitive for us, and that is this is all part of fulfillment. Peter says they're destined for this. Again, I repeat, it's not against their will. It's not as though they really want to trust Christ and really want to believe, and God says, no, I'm going to make you an unbeliever. No, it's exactly what they wanted. God gives them exactly what they desire, an eternity that they earned. 
That's what God gives them. You ever pondered the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Really thought through it. Here's this true story that Jesus told about a, a man named Lazarus, a, a poor man who ended up in glory, and a man who mistreated him in life, a man uh, who was wealthy. And Jesus reports this story, and He gives us the divine perspective. And of course, we hear about the rich man who speaks to God, and he talks to God, but he doesn't say at all what you'd expect. You might expect someone who is suffering eternal punishment, you might expect they might cry out for mercy. Please make this easier on me. It's almost as if that rich man knows he deserves it. The other thing that you might expect him to say is, Uncle, I give. Okay, okay, okay. I've been here long enough. I repent. I believe in the Son. I, I understand now. And I want to turn to Christ. But he doesn't. Why doesn't the rich man do that? Because he doesn't want to. There is no person who after a million years of hell will suddenly have these righteous desires to turn to Christ and to love Jesus and to repent and to turn, in him, turn to Him. They will continue to suffer because that is what they want. They don't want an eternity that they can't earn. And so God gives them what they want, an eternity that they did earn. And they live in that eternity, never turning to Christ. And here is this rich man, never turning to Christ, even in his torment, never turning to Christ. He had a different message. His message, he knew the truth. Like any demon, he knew the truth. He knew that Christ alone could save, and so he, he wants that message to go to his brothers. But he himself won't turn. He himself, even after time and hell, will not turn. God has given him exactly what he wanted, and this is part of a fulfillment. Now, this makes those of us who are believers even more grateful. Why? Because that is no different than us. Unless God changed our desires to want Him, we would be right there with Him. We're no different. And so we look back at this passage and we rejoice that we're living stones, not because of something we did, but because of something God did. It's all something that God did by His grace on our hearts, changing us. And simply the grace of God that we become these living stones. Let's embrace this identity and let's pray that God would use it to change us in the way in which we live. Father, we thank you for what you've given us. We thank you that you've given us this magnificent passage that teaches us that we're living stones, that we make up this temple, that we indeed are the place where you reside through your spirit. And we get this job as priests. Help us to embrace this identity and help us to give you all the credit for this identity. It is all to you. We would be no different than any human had you not come into our hearts and changed us, regenerating our hearts, giving us a desire to love you and to turn to your Son. And so we give you all the glory. We pray for those who have not turned to Christ. Grant them salvation. Grant them a desire to turn to Jesus now. And ask this in his name. Amen. If you'll stand with me. I'm just going to read Ephesians 3, 19 to 22, which is Paul's version of this same truth. I read part of it earlier, but let me read the whole section. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens 
with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.